against the machines. This is a race with the machines. From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Okay, so are we ready to rock and roll? Yeah, yeah. Or hip and hop? Hip and, yeah, yeah, we're, we're on. We're live. <laughs> so. Trying to be modern here. You're failing. Okay. It's a good thing you don't have a mic. Okay, so. <laughs> yes. So why don't we start with the typical Professor uh, Xinwei. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sha Xinwei. And uh, in Chinese, we put our family names first. But I was born in the States. I was born in Washington, D.C., I'm, uh, uh, I wear different hats. I'm the director of the School of Arts, Media, Engineering, and also of uh, the Synthesis Center at Arizona State University. Uh, that's my uh, part of my life. I'm very happily here in Montreal, the other half of my life, uh, uh, being senior fellow here with B21. Excellent. So I thought I'd start asking you about synthesis, but also prototyping social forms and what you're doing here at Building 21. So you describe um, synthesis as a practice of building an ecology of practices for imagining and making the worlds we inhabit. So can you elaborate on those sort of three projects and what is kind of holding them together? Actually, there's a prehistory to that, which is a topological media lab that right. I directed here in Montreal. We can come back to that later on. The ecology practices, that phrase comes from Felix Guattari. And so we're just borrowing that. But this idea that when we talk about ecology, it's not just you know the environment. Ecology is of, let's say, animals and minerals and plants. That's one, of course, is very essential. But there's also this ecology of uh, social relations and ecology of ideas, ecologies of ideas. And I put in there ecologies of practices, thinking of Isabel Stinger's, this idea that, well, there could be all sorts of practices just like there are all sorts of you know creatures, right? And Or let's say entities with different interests and different genealogies, different ways of evolving. But somehow they all must live together in one world, even if they may have different interests. So this kind of you know, rough, messy ecology, uh, what is this of ideas, of practices, and how do we inhabit that kind of thing? So Synthesis Center, the idea there is to provide a home for um, people, adventurous people, to invent these uh, new ways of thinking about things, imagining things, and even making what they're imagining and having different practices for how to do that and how to think about, you know, once we make such a situation or a thing or technique, well, we've had to be able to reflect on that. What do we make? You know, is it interesting? And do we want to do it again? Or why would anybody else be interested in that? So synthesis means we want to do it in a holistic way, you know, bring together all these different ways of doing it in one place. Right. One of the things that I've heard you mention in your lectures is that there's a difference between bringing together, say, an artist, a philosopher, and a mathematician, putting them in a room and asking them to collaborate and producing a sort of synthetic form of um, science, what you call techne, you know, other ways of thinking in one sort of individual. So how does that like contrast work? And then how do we go towards one rather than the other? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about here, but you know, I guess everywhere there's all this talk about uh, STEM going from STEM to STEAM, right? It's typical certain kinds of you know, educational circles. And I mean, science, technology, engineering, medicine, we add the A for art. 
And then recently, people have been talking about STEAM, adding H for humanities. So I, I remember so what's, what's left. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's alphabet soup. So I said this. <laughs> it's alphabet soup. And there's, that's one model, uh, just laminating together these different disciplines and hope we get something out of that. And, and that's not a typical modular approach to, to the world. You know, in science that we get from typical ways of thinking about science engineering, divide and conquer, right? So now we have to put it back together again and hopefully get a holistic education. Mm-hmm. So instead of that, uh, we've been thinking um, about other models, such as the notion of alloy. You know, we have metals, and so when you melt them down, and we produce one metal. It's not cladding of two different metals, but one metal, one thing. It's called an alloy. Or in earlier days, the notion of alchemy. It's the idea of transmutation of substances together. I don't want to be hylomorphic or anything, but just this idea that how do you actually blend together, you know, these different flavors and and and, and practices together. I think B21 is like this too. I mean, it's the beginning, right? B21 bringing people together from all these different areas out of their um, particular, uh, let's say, uh, elements, right? <laughs> and here's a space we can maybe find a way to, we don't know yet, find a way to maybe heat it up so that people can find ways to blend uh, practice together. In synthesis, we've been doing that uh, for now some six, seven years, more at the research level, right? So I'd be interested to see how we can actually bring these kinds of different ways of blending together. Right. Um, earlier, you were mentioning to me that like some of the projects that you've been hearing about, some of the interns that are actively working at Building 21, you see a lot of potential in kind of collaborating here. Like what specifically are you envisioning as things that you want, might, might want, excuse me, might want to produce here at B21? It would be premature for me to say what I want, but sure. I, I'm thinking, uh, I've been talking about this with Olivia from the beginning, actually, which is uh, now with you guys. Looking at uh, not making the same thing in different cities and different institutions, but leveraging the respective strengths and particularities. I'm the director of arts, media, and engineering, which is formerly inside the Arts and Designs um, Institute at ASU, and also engineering. So basically, arts and engineering, techne, making, people mm. who make stuff, right, in different ways. So at AME, we talk about learning through making, knowledge production through making. But making can be even making philosophy, too. So it's experimental in that sense. Okay, so there's this maker practice, okay, practice of making. There could be more reflection, too. And here, there's, a, there's so much strength, you know, and not just in B21, but of course throughout McGill, as a top, top flight university with research where there are all these different arts of and sciences of reflection, whether it's in history or, or neuroscience. Right? And maybe what we could be thinking about is how do we, when we attract, we meaning B21, when we attract uh, people with really great ideas um, who are trying to reflect in an adventurous way, in a, in a way that doesn't fit inside a particular discipline, let's say, or program, what's the next step? Because for some of those kinds of inquiries, people might want to make an instance of what people are imagining. So I have some specific examples in mind, um, but I'm slowly learning that by just talking with the fellows one by one and also speaking with the fellows from the past years one by one to understand which of those inquiries might naturally lend themselves to an empirical work as well. Right. So making philosophy, that seems to me to be uh, sort of uh, the way I would define you, Chen Wei. Mm-hmm. But in what I've known from you for a number of years, it's always making philosophy or you know making ideas, but there's always a technological part to it, right? So, can you dis- can you explore that 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 dimension, the, the machine dimension of yeah. making ideas and philosophy? Yeah, this is a very precise question. It's a good one. So, 
there are several steps. One one is why why experiment at all? I mean, why why would philosoph- any philosophy philosophical practice require experimentation? And that's a that's a conversation. You know, it's not for me to just say hey, this is why, but uh, the motivation for that um, has been if we think. If one takes a processualist approach, like a like a like a philosophical attitude, which thinks that the world is continuously in flux and it's dynamic, it's changing all the time. And this is a very ancient way, of, ancient mode of philosophical thinking. In the West, going back to Heraclitus, in China, it'd be like Taoism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If we take that kind of approach to thinking about the world is ever unfolding and changing, then any any schema, you know, whether it's ethics or metaphysics, etc., we can't. Let it just rest. You just say this is the way it is, and then we're done with it. You know, instead we would have to always be making fresh philosophy because the world itself is remaking itself afresh. This is just the attitude I have, okay, with the people that I'm working with from philosophy, but also from the arts and engineering. Okay, given that, that that's a motivation for 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 doing empirical work. So let's 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 actually test the situation, and so maybe my ideas or our ideas for. Con- for what the world is made of and how people ought to be, well, we might have to adapt it. You know, keep you know, it has to be adapted. So yes, so it's informed by you know what we studied in books, etc. But maybe we also combine that with what we would call experimental philosophy, which means we. What do we mean by experiment? Experiment would be, well, first of all, empirical means looking at experience. Okay, looking at experience, but not just my experience. Looking at our experience, collective experience, and we'll we'll go from there. Experiment would be to change the conditions of experience. And for us, changing the conditions of experience in a reproducible way. That means, to the extent that contemporary life is infused with technology, then if we want to change the conditions of experience, we do need to also change the technologies. We need to be able to adapt to technologies. We need to be able to invent new technologies appropriate to the experiment. That's it. In a lot of these kind of experimental settings that you generated, there's like a focus on um, embodiment, you know. Um, like I think you've expressed kind of explicitly before that um, it's not enough to, you know, put uh, sticky notes up on a wall and put strings between them and say, well, conceptually, these are the changes that need to happen. Um, it's important to experience the differences that you're generating. So why the focus on embodiment? Like what's gained by a phenomenological approach that's not purely theoretical, but that's actually revealed to you in, in practice and play? Mm-hmm. Another great question. Whenever I say something like body or experiment, uh, there will be brackets around them, which means there will be initial ad- understandings of what one means by body, and then we're going to, in the course of working through, let's say, embodied experience, we're going to change what we think bodies mean. Okay, So mm. let's just do it that way. So... The starting point for that came from somewhere else, which is about the limits of representation. So there's a lot of work uh, we see here, too, uh, w- among some of the students' ways of starting with things. But looking at, well, what's what's the representation? Do we do it as a diagram? Do we do it as a table with numbers? Do we do data analysis? Do we write in English? You know, write it down as a poem, perhaps. Then we learn from the humanities, from literature, that we, we study very deeply, you know, what does language do? You know, what, are the, what, are the, what can language express? What can be represented at all? You know, this came up yesterday. Tanner's, Tanner's thesis, yeah. That's right, yeah. So the question of representation is one of the deep questions for philosophy and, and humanities, actually, right? But if we start by first being a little bit, having a little bit of humility, saying, well, okay, so I know a lot of mathematics, or you know a lot of, you know, data science, you know a lot of uh, whatever, you know, uh, 
have a lot of narrative skills. Maybe we can say, well, maybe there are limits. Whatever the mode representation is, it will not explicitly capture everything about experience. That's why poetry is so powerful because it works this way, right? So, given that, can we um, be mindful of the positivistic limit to say, well, all we need to know uh, about a sign is already in that sign. We don't need to worry about context, relationship, or history, genealogy. Well, let's let's say we we should be sensitive to that. A lot of the computer techniques for representation have basically started with the assumption that we can bis- exclude from representation, material, corporeal, historical, sexual contexts, right? We just don't, of course, we think we can, but this is what we know from looking at, for example, how Claude Shannon uh, first introduced the notion of the bit and information. That is, it's the meaning, the semantics is not actually part of the, the representation that was given to us by the digital. Not to say we can't use the digital politically, we can use anything politically, but it would be a mistake, I think, to assume that digital representation can encode everything about experience. So it's not so much body per se, but more this idea of event that we're starting from in Synthesis Center and the Topological Media Lab. We're interested in looking at whole events. Events have stuff, objects, sorry, objects. <laughs> no, it's perfect. You know, has, 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 That's has, an event. <laughs> well, in fact, it's material, right? Has yeah. objects, has human bodies, has other kinds of bodies, has air, has noise, right? It's all this stuff that's going on. Mm. And also has symbolic, symbolic material as well. You know, our memories, our prejudices, our histories, etc. So we want to, I want to work, I want to say experimentally, I want to work in this kind of thick, messy situation. And that's why in the day-to-day, we say, hey, let's have living bodies in the room. Because mm. that's the quickest way to get the material back in, in a live situation. So it's not just in bodies, but it's more about events and material, material events. I see. So the, the, the limitations of representation, insofar as it's kind of discursive, can be avoided by producing experience as such. Uh, and putting people into those contexts. And this brings up the ethics of experiment. From the very beginning, I mean, in 2001 or 1999, so um, we, we, we explicitly uh, wanted to not have a hard division between the category of experimenter and subject or between artist and spectator. Mm. So in any event, we always uh, assumed that that was very porous, that the agents in the situation some could be both or flip back and forth between, how do you say, a proposer of how the event's going to proceed or the maker of a thing or a recipient, you know, a passive or, or, or active participant in the event. So there's that kind of um, symmetrization in our ethic. Mm. Maybe on, on the vein of ethics, um, one of the things that uh, plays, I think, a part in, in the prototyping social forms, mm-hmm. there is a sort of um, futurist or political element to it. And it, that it asks us to imagine, you know, what a more ethical social form might be. Um, how do we go from an experimental event to a sort of lived social form, right? Um, because it seems that, like, what we're really getting at with the event is a sort of ecological validity, right? And what that implies is that it's not enough to say that we live lives through, you know, information that can be accessed and talked about. It's that, you know, we live information, right? There's a sort of boundless kind of cultural context. And so how do we go about living a new context, um, which is, of course, very different from merely experiencing an event that uh, introduces novelty? 
And I think a, be- the, a great way to s- approach explaining that is the project that you proposed to us this morning or that you shared with the Building 21 team, which is the shared kind of meal experience. Maybe you could describe that a little bit more thoroughly. Mm-hmm. So with regard to this ethic, this, this processual approach to the world is actually can go quite deep. That really means that as experimentalists, we need to be able to change the schema under which we are constructing the apparatuses for doing the experiment. And even the, the extensive question that's being explored is very, it's what people say is co-articulated, right? So I'll use an example. I like example of Galileo. In Galileo, uh, the story goes, I mean, he, he constructed his instruments. He, you know, he ground glass, he made telescopes. He also uh, discovered, one says, you know, satellites, you know, things, the sunspots, you know, parts of the sky that were not invariant. He also was a mathematician. He invented mathematics or he constructed mathematics or adapted mathematics to account for these observations that were made possible by the apparatuses. And these were all co-constructed at the same time. Mm. That's really beautiful. Right? It's not like somehow by magic I observed the world and bang, I don't question what the, what the data, what the, how the data was acquired. No, no, he, con- he constructed telescopes right, that made those phenomena become phenomena for him, right? Mm. Et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm saying? So it's in that spirit. One could call that abductive science. Abduct, ABD, right? abductive okay. science, right? This way of approaching the world with this contingent sets of understandings and our practices and even the questions because with, before seeing those phenomena, he didn't even know there was something called satellites to explain. That's one, one, one part of it. The other part is, is never to imagine that I'm outside the frame of the experiment. So that's typical, right? One would say that there's experimentalist and there's a subject, right? Whether it's human or non-human. And that's a radical shift, at least for the sciences. I mean, of course, they say in, in anthropology, people are acutely sensitive to this question. Right. right. I mean, it's, we could say it's, it's the discipline that's concerned precisely with that observation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, coming back to something like the cafe, I mean, that's a very small but initial step. It's in this abductive sense, right? Because the larger question that um, it was Yan Jun, I think, but also Shomit, uh, Yan Jun, Liu Yan Jun, and Shomit Barua who were giving a hint about the larger question. The larger question was uh, thickening sociality. You know, how can we um, instrument or animate a given built environment, domestic environment, or you know, humble environment, everyday environment, such that everyday gestures, such as setting the table or washing dishes or just cutting, cutting salad you know, on the plate, toasting wine glasses, how can humble everyday gestures acquire great symbolic charge? And this has been a 20-year project back to synthesis, back to topological media lab. So that's carrying on that kind of, it's both artistic, poetic, but also a social question, okay? So in that long history of different kinds of experiments, this is the late, one of the latest versions. So in the context of a, of a little table, cafe table, we want to say how can we instrument or animate the objects, everyday objects of a cafe? such that you know these different kinds of people coming from very different cultures and maybe different uh, uh, intentions get together in a situation that become that, that becomes more amenable to certain kinds of sociality without having without forcing it this is part of the ethics too without forcing mm. determining what will happen because you and I you and I share with people at B- B- tw- building 21 and I guess uh, also Michael Montanero at at, mm-hmm. at at Concordia with the 
Topological Media Lab. We sort of share a, I don't know how to frame this, a, a, a curiosity about new ways of learning and new ways of disseminating information. Do you want to say a word or two about how you perceive this? Hmm. And that's how Olivier and I met. It's through this question. I want to thank Olivier for this um, the opportunity to continue that conversation in a, in, a, in a real, you know, grounded, tangible way. For example, one way to start that is looking at, you know, STEAM education and STEAM education, <laughs> right? You know, people say, let's, do, let's be interdisciplinary. Let's be just clad all these different disciplines together. And in fact, at Arts Media Engineering, we have faculty coming from these different directions. They come there highly accomplished people in electrical engineering, English department, you interviewed Ed Finn, for example, from English, uh, history of science, philosophy, dance. But after 10 years, now maybe more like 15, there's beginning to be a blending of mm. uh, uh, practices. And that's what we would call transdisciplinary. Okay, this works, this is at the faculty level. Okay, what about students? This is the question. What are the conditions under which people can come, students can come together, where they, we don't ask them to drop their discipline at the door, first of all. This is the MIT thing about being, an, sorry, MIT Media Lab saying they're anti-disciplinary. Mm. Sometimes that sounds like, well, say, jettison discipline. No, 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 no. Here we have people who are very accomplished. They're, they're, they're quite competent in their home disciplines. They're coming to us with these competencies. But there may be inquiries that, that trans, are transversal to discipline. You know, if we wanted to think about climate change or something, those questions do not stay, they cannot be bounded in t by any one discipline. So they're necessarily transversal. So that transversality won't have a home in the typical academic context. And it's okay. In a sense, you can say the disciplines get their strength from that kind of, you know, focus and bounding. That's, that's fine. But where in the university can we have a place for pursuing questions that just cut, cut across, just by the nature of the question. Now, that's one. The other is, unlike maybe typical superficial kinds of interdisciplinarity where we have an intersection, this kind of Venn diagram model, mm -hmm. you know, here's a big bubble for physics, here's a big bubble for, I don't know, like a history. And the intersection is peripheral to both, <laughs> right? Same thing with art and science, right? The intersection may be uh, kind of weak art, kind of, yeah, you know, old hat science. But instead, if we have questions that are really vital and they have autonomy, they're very, very cogent, they're very important questions, that's what I think we should do. We should think about those kind of lines or arcs of inquiry that are really strong. They just happen to cut across disciplines. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's happening, could be happening at B21. Over in the, with Michael Montanaro, that was more in the art domain, in, in the arts. One might think that some types of art practices are already transversal, but even in the arts, there's this, this kind of siloing going on too, mm -hmm. actually. So it's a bit, it's interesting to see how to pull from performing arts and from media arts, and but to pursue artistic propositions that cut across the different art forms. It reminds me of uh, what this professor Andre Kostopoulos, uh, who used to be a, a McGill dean of students, a brilliant man, once told me. He said, "We we have to explore the space of possibilities as much as we can because." We don't know where solutions will come from in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Because the problems will get, as you said, they'll cut even more transversely than they do right now. And maybe solutions will come from unexpected realms and, and dimensions, right? Yeah. And if we only explore the ones that we know, then we'll get solutions that are always sort of the same. And they'll never, they'll never address what you, you know, mentioned, the, the, those famous wicked problems that we all face right now. Yeah, let's pick up on this wicked problems, okay? This idea of wicked problems, it's great that we're, we bring this in. People know now um, 
probably um, all the listeners will know this term, wicked problem. But I still want to hear some interesting characteristics. One is that a solution to one will not give us insight into solving another. In fact, solving one wicked problem, the solution to that wicked problem may itself induce another wicked problem. Right. <laughs> and my favorite is that we are the we who solve a wicked problem, try to solve a wicked problem, are often part of the wicked problem. Mm. Right. So given that, and yet I believe that I think just looking, observing, let's say, people who try to do this all the time, they get better at it, even though they know they don't, they can't just follow a recipe. And these kinds of how do you say meta skills that one develops. I actually see that among some of the students here. They're already doing that. It's really interesting. I'm very much moved and really admire them tremendously what they're doing. And they, they, they've been, some of these people have been doing it for years and tackling wicked problems just because they're in the world. These problems are, we could say that in the world, they're all wicked problems, you know, like uh, transportation networks or, or, or economies or food, etc. Now, the issue is that MacArthur Foundation, the big foundations, Gates Foundation, they want to talk, tackle these things like food and war, you know, uh, polarization of economies, etc. But unfortunately, there's a solutionist approach. Pour the $10 million down and push a button, you know. It doesn't work like that, I think. I think basically we can only at best navigate complex situations. So it's a matter of adjustments, of navigating, of seeing possibilities as they emerge and then weight our attention differently. And that's more realistic. One challenge that we will face is that because these wicked problems are much bigger than any one person or species, the question is how can we work collectively? You know, it's not one, per one heroic person navigating. How, how do we build ensembles that can navigate in this graceful way? One of the things we share, all of us here, is we embrace complexity as the solution. We push away from the silver bullet uh, solution to these complex problems. And I think we all do this here, right? Complexity is a solution. And solutions will, many solutions will merge from this complexity. And some of them will be very difficult. And discussing this with my wife the other day, and I said, this is probably the thing I, as I grow older that I'm pushing back against most uh, is a single solution to complex problems. And I, I hear it everywhere. This is exactly what creates the other problems, right? When you apply that, it's like I had this, you know, I had this image about education. Education is like this balloon, right? So you, you try to push on one end and it pushes on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if we embrace the, the whole sphere there and its complexity, it's a better way to move forward, I believe. So theater is very helpful, I think, too. I mean, in that we can think about the richness of an event, even if the stage is pretty bare. It, it could be the stage is very complicated. There's lots of people, lots of you know, props, etc. or the stage is pretty bare. But in any case, we can think of these other aspects of an event, such as, is it you know, under tension? Is it pregnant with possibility? And I would like to think about the term richness. When I talk to people coming from engineering, and we have a foot there, I reserve that word complexity, complex to, because we can look at how many pieces there are and how many ways are related to each other. That's, that's one measure, right? And then richness is something I introduce deliberately to such people and say, what we're after here is how to enrich a situation or how to or recognize the richness of a situation. Right, there you go. So it's helpful, I think. This is maybe changing the subject slightly. But I'm, I'm interested in, um, and I don't know how frequently this term comes up in, in your attempts, no pun intended, to kind of synthesize uh, your thoughts, but the term of poesis, which is the art of creation which precedes theory building, theory building, of course, which precedes methodology. And so 
poesis I see sort of its counterpart is the abduction that you're talking about insofar as things are concerned with imagining and making worlds, right? The, the imagining is kind of abductive and the making is kind of poetic, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, how, do we, how do we balance these two sort of functions? Because they, they do seem to be sort of orthog- orthogonal to each other. You mean the abductive and the poetic? Yeah, uh-huh. that's right. Yeah, maybe maybe you can say the first is something part of you know how I think about how we think about what's going on, right? And how do we intend? What do we intend? You know, what, what's our design plan? So to, let's say, and I'm not sure that I would even use poises as referring to what people are doing alone. Mm. I'm thinking of like Morse Peckham. This is credit to Harry Smoke, who's one of my was one of my PhD students. Thinking about um, embedding like the question embedding art practice into larger category of bio- biology, biological practice. I see. Okay. So, so, so poetic in the auto-poetic sense, then. That's, what, that's one way. Right. And thinking about, I mean, as we have now, I mean, people are beginning to think, theorize about, you know, um, I don't want to say post-human, but more non-anthropocentric modes of, of, of evolution, of creation, even of thought, right? Uh, without merely mystifying uh, the world. But it's very, it's very useful, I think, if we try. This is part that we haven't touched until now, uh, another aspect of the work, at least that in synthesis and TML, is how can we think non-anthropocentrically? In other words, we are humans, okay, we are social, okay, but how can we think all these categories or all these problems without first thinking that we are the only or the most important beings in the universe? That's, that's it. So now if we think about poesis, poesis, this idea that of this term that we use to des- one could use to describe, you know, origination, with an, always keeping in mind, however, it's not just a physics thing. It also includes aesthetic, aesthetic, uh, affective uh, qualities as well, and also at the same time, thinking, trying to think that non-anthropocentrically. So that's all bound together for me when I'm using poesis. That's excellent. Does anyone else have any questions? I'm good. Yeah, I've run through my list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, thank you, thank you for uh, yeah. giving us uh, your time here. This is uh, fascinating. We'll probably have another one and a third one, and we'll keep having this uh, conversation. It's really fascinating. So thank you, Professor Shashinway. Uh, and uh, this is uh, the end of our uh, third. Is it third? This is the third episode. Yeah, right. That's third right. Podcast on the radical futures. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Damien. Thank you. It's a pleasure.